welcome back to the Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And this week, we're going to drive real, real fast. Vroom, vroom. Pick your car, Mustang V Charger. Where you talked about, we're going to talk about 1968's Bullet. Once again, not named after a piece of ammunition, but named after the main character of the film. But before we get started, how was your week? My week was so far very short. Brief. Right, because we recorded <laughs> last night. Um, but it still was a wonderful week. I enjoyed myself immensely. It was my birthday. I got presents. Um, I should be more suspicious of the motivation behind the present when it's a wine glass that says Winosaurus. But it's not it's, about the wino part. It's about the saurus There part. we are. Yes. Yes. And so, you like wine. I do. <laughs> In fact, you uh, should be drinking some right now, but you are not. No, I need to stay lively for this. Might be too sleepy. Particular, I gotcha. Especially uh, podcast. How about you? How was your week? Good. Presumably, I went away for the weekend, and mm. I had a lovely weekend with a lot of people. Okay. Corey has informed me we are going wine tasting on Friday night. We are having games with Mike. And then with Mike and Laura and Jeff on Saturday, and then we were going to a concert on Saturday, and then we'll have dinner with his parents on Sunday. That's a lot of people. Um, where <laughs> so, are you going wine tasting? I don't know. One of the wineries that is in Slow. Okay. I wonder if I have... Well, never mind. I will I will get that information for okay. you. But I don't I don't know. I'm going to go wherever he drives me to, because I'm, I don't I don't drive when I'm down there. That's actually a good idea. Then you'll have to finish all the glasses. I get to I get to have all the wine. Right. All right. You want to talk about Bullet? I want to talk about Bullet. Let's start with this movie. It was directed by Peter Yates. Stars Steve McQueen. 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 Right. MC Queen. Second build in some. Formats is Jacqueline Bissett, which makes no sense. She has four lines in the movie. You do see her na- naked shoulders a lot, though. You see her in bed, asleep, on her stomach, like four times. <laughs> Most of this movie is Steve McQueen and Steve McQueen's face. Mm. <laughs> and cars, also cars. Um, it came out October 17th, 1968. That predates both of us. Right. So what's your history with this movie? I was shown the chase scene, or it was recommended to me, for an editing class. That makes sense. And it was, I was very impressed with it. Later on, I got to see the film in its entirety once, and was impressed by Steve McQueen's performance, which sounds odd because he really, he, as we learned, he pared back his lines considerably. And wanted to strip it down to what was absolutely essential to communicate this character. Yeah, and I was. That isn't to say though he's he goes through this thing mute. No, no. He speaks when you would expect him to speak. It's right. not weird. Because no. I was I, when when we heard that I was like, this is going to be weird. Then yeah. he's going to be like autistic, but that's not what happens here. But his um, the film itself is really influential. Yeah, it's like the first action movie. Right, the first kind of modern-day action film. We've already seen... Had you seen the whole of it before 
We watched it? I'd seen it once quite a long time ago. Okay. Okay. And I hadn't seen the whole of it because it was edited for television. Oh, okay. So, so when you he watched turns it to Robert Bond and says bullshit, that was not no. in that cut, <gasps> as well as some other Scandalous. stuff. Scandalous. Um, yeah, I'd never seen this movie. I just know it for... Right. I know that it has a fan like I know it like I know the French connection. Right. There's a famous chase scene. And before the version of it that we saw, uh-huh. although we watched it after, um, TCM has made a little like a baby documentary. Right. To go alongside it to talk about the chase scene, the eleven yeah. minute long real streets of San Francisco. Chase scene, something that had not ever been no. done before and has only ever been tried to be taught since. Like, yeah. people will just go in and be like, no, but like, better than Bullet, which, mm-hmm. I mean, good luck. Because here's the thing with CG, it gets less good because right. there's less physics. You can see that stuff is not nearly as in danger. Right. And things as they were. And it's here. interesting looking at uh, materials, documentaries, and things about the making of this film, promotional films that were made for theater chains back in the day. Yeah. Um, and we used to catch them on television when a program ran late. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of the package that local television had often was these promotional films that were made on the making of this film. Right, or if the movie only runs an hour and 20 minutes right. and then with the commercials were at 145, when it, yeah. When it runs short. Then they'll show one of these. Got you. And uh, and so I'd seen something on the making of Bullet before. Oh yeah. I was concerned mostly in the car chase. And the, the fun. The part, car chase is the thing, which is interesting because this movie is extremely twisty. Like the right. plot of it is interesting and twisty. And I think that's part of the reason why they emphasize the car chase as the part they were willing to show the audience. Oh, maybe because, because you don't want to give too much of the plot right. away. Yeah, yeah, there is that. Um, and we're going to give it all away today. So there we are. Yep. <laughs> Just Spoilers, you know. everybody. See it's what we first. do. It's an amazingly fun movie. So yeah, if you haven't seen that, I uh-huh. will say I I didn't know what to expect. Right. I figured it would probably be pretty entertaining, and I knew it was sixties and not seventies, so it might be gritty, but it wouldn't be as like as gritty as say a Dirty Harry, right. which it isn't, uh-huh. but it kind of almost is. Right. Uh, I like Steve McQueen in this. Um, I'm I don't know how I feel about him generally. Uh-huh. I thought he was very good in this. Right. Um, I didn't like that the TCM, the presenter, she was like, he cut his his lines back so he barely spoke and or emoted, mm-hmm. which is not true. Right. When you say that, I'm like, so I'm just going to be looking at a wooden figure for the entire right. movie? That sounds thrilling. That's not true. He's emoting. Yeah. He's not emoting to the back of the room, but he doesn't have to because he's on film. And that's, so. that's what's interesting about his performance. He's following in the footsteps of people like Gary Cooper, mm-hmm. who just was often mocked for, well, he just goes yup and nope, and he does westerns, and he does this. But he does a lot of acting with his face and his, his face, eyes. Yes. And you do know right. what this guy is thinking. Like, it's clear. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, so I was like, don't. I I thought that that was disingenuous to say that he doesn't emote. It's not big things across his face, but there's a lot going on in his face. Um, And, you know, the the other thing that that little documentary thing uh, told us was 
uh, that McQueen wasn't necessarily chosen first for this. Mm-hmm. And um, and by this stage of his career, he was really interested in the whole of the filmmaking right. process and not just the acting. Like, he was interested in directing. He was interested in doing the stunts as much as he could himself. Mm-hmm. Although he was... And he was a... Not a daredevil, but like... He yeah. was a person who was interested in cars He's and and pretty close to that though, yeah. because he does do things that put him at considerable risk. Yeah, uh, but what they said, what they mentioned in the in that vignette too, and mm-hmm. it's really true, is people think that stunt people are daredevils, and they are literally not, the opposite no. of that. They are engineers. They don't want anybody daring anything. They mm-hmm. want to know what's going to happen. It's choreographed. It's a dance. It yeah. is not just let's <laughs> let's just start running downhill and hope that we make it to the bottom. Like that's I, not <laughs> what what also works really well in this film is that uh, the the uh, documentary I saw on it was he really pushed for realism in this film, and as as fantastic as the situations get sometimes, there were there was not much in the way of altering the automobiles during their chasing. Yeah. There wasn't. They sh- souped one up a little mm-hmm. bit because in a in a flat head to head road race between these two cars, the Dodger's going to win. Mm-hmm. So you have to do some right. Adjust- it has a bigger motor. Turns out, bigger engine means goes faster, <laughs> like yeah. on a flat straightaway. Right, which is not. And really that's the other thing. They were doing these cars. The, the interesting thing about this uh, car chase. Uh-huh. And I don't know how much we'll talk about when we get to the car chase, because we're talking about it so much now. But I would say the interesting thing about this car chase is they are asking these cars to do things that these cars are not designed to do. These cars are designed to go fast on a straight line. They have them driving the streets of San Francisco, which are... No, not at all a straight line. Very hilly and very curvy, and there are not very many straight lines to be found at all. And the other thing is that unlike... Uh, the general practice was you speed up a car, and as was pointed out in this vignette that we saw, mm-hmm. uh, the emphasis was put on the crash of the automobile. Yes. This it's film sort was... of a big payoff, and that was not what they mm-hmm. were focused on here. They didn't want to crash them. No. They they focused on, instead on... I mean, they did crash right. one of them. <laughs> in the end, that's the climax to it, but it is 11 minutes that starts when, when, when uh, Stephen Queen's character buckles his seatbelt Really, and there's this cat and mouse game. A couple right, of and then there's three minutes around. later, the other driver buckles seat belt, his right. seat and belt, and that's when you know it's on. Oh, it's on. <laughs> and they're literally they're driving 125 miles an hour at yep. times, and yep. taking corners and skidding a lot because they're, they're that charger again. loses all of its hubcaps maybe <laughs> right. twice. It's it's wild. Well, six to eight hubcaps. They do take out one camera during right. the filming of the of the thing. Not the cam. Fortunately, not the camera that's mounted on a Corvette with the camera person just sitting, just exposed in the to trunk the world. Of this car, and he has this Aeroflex camera, which was lightweight and which is. Also, the lightweight for 1968. Well, it was for 1968. Pretty heavy. It was, and that's the reason why a lot of this was shot on location because he no longer had these huge, bulky cameras that somehow had to be dismantled to get up a staircase or whatever else. Because you had lighter weight cameras, you could shoot on actual locations. So, one of McQueen's uh, ideas was because he really um, 
lobbied for this property. It was going to be a different kind of film. It was going to be set in New York. Uh, Bullet was supposed to be, Frank Bullet, supposed to be an older detective, and they even considered Spencer Tracy at one point. Uh, but he really lobbied for the film and went for let's move and it to San Francisco. he's not a young man no. at this time. Like, he's in his 40s? Uh, his maybe? I'll look, it up. Sure, I'll look yeah. it up. He's got... Here's the thing about Steve McQueen. Craggy face. <laughs> well, also, remember, he had been... Not, like, bad. No. Just, like, there's was, character on his face. I believe in his early 30s when he played a teenager in The Blob. Good grief and great... Oh, okay. And so... so oh, that's right. His whole... His whole sort of career was shifted back. Right. And so he, uh, but part of it was the fact that he was physically very, very fit. He was one of, as we've talked about before when we talked about, unfortunately, someone like Kirk Douglas, is that you get an action actor, and that was something that you had with him. You had an actor who drove cars fast. He's training with Bruce Lee at this point. He's, you know, which unfortunately he didn't get to do in one of his films, but he, uh, he has all these sort of things he does to blow off steam and to stay fit, I guess. Is of course he was born in Indiana, because that blonde. Right. Um, he was 28 in The Blob. Okay. He was 38 here. All right. So, yeah. Um, Which is he was born, in, he was born in 1930. When you consider that he started in an independent film that was financed by a producer using equipment from a church group in The Blob, and ten years later, he has his own production company. He was just really ambitious on top of that. So, yeah, that's up to him. Um, oh, I'm fascinated by this lineup. Okay. So, I mean, well, yeah, it's good that he blew up like that because he died at 50. Yeah. Um, in Mexico. On the top here, it says of a heart attack, but in the mini-bio... It says of mesothelioma. Oh. Which, those two things are not incompatible no, with each other. No. So now I want to do some... Where did he get exposed to mesothelioma? A, di- a direct result of massive exposure while removing asbestos lagging from pipes aboard a troop chef- ship full of the Marines. That's why oh. our naval... our, na- our We had a... Bu- that was the... It was na- Navy veterans and... Um, Navy veterans... Uh, car mechanics uh-huh. and uh, contractors like um, that would like build your house, right? Because it was everywhere on it was it was all over the place on ships right. through World War Two and maybe through Vietnam even. Mm. Uh, it was wrapped or everything's hot in a boat, so they wrap everything in asbestos to keep you from burning yourself. So every time you have to change a valve or a gasket, you have to mm. peel away the asbestos, making it friable, breathing it into your lungs. That's hey, everybody, terrible. we're doing mesothelioma 101 again. Then brake pads, and um, they used to take asbestos, just bags of powdered asbestos, mm. and mix it with joint compound to get the right consistency to put on drywall. So... Those are the those mm. are the big three, right. <laughs> and you know people who worked directly with insulation because insulation was right. very friable. Um, yeah, but that's um, yeah, that's a pity. Yeah, he probably did have a heart attack, but it was secondary to yeah mesothelioma, which is wild. And yeah, it'll take you out quickly. It's a it's a terrible terrible disease. 
it took him 20 years to or 30 probably years right. to to show that he had it and then it would have taken him out in a year so Jesus. yeah terrible um so this whole movie similar to the last movie that we watched mm-hmm. Casablanca takes place over a very brief period of time right. Like, basically, Friday night to Monday morning. Not basically. Friday night to Monday morning. Or Sunday night. I think it ends at night, really. He gets home uh, Monday morning and opens the door and sees right. that she's still there. Yeah. That's, that's, that's it. So, on Friday night in Chicago is where we open. And on Monday morning in San Francisco is where we close. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of stuff happens, um, including we, we watch this man eat a bunch. I feel like this is where Brad Pitt... Gets his, I'm going to eat on stage thing. <laughs> there is, uh, Brad Pitt has tried to be Steve McQueen. Um, Ryan Gosling. Oh, interesting. In at yeah. least two of the films, Drive and, uh, God, what was the film he did in Thailand? Oh, where he also tried to strip back his dialogue to the absolute minimum when he was speaking. And Drive is, frankly, a film that Steve McQueen could have done. Oh, for about sure. a driver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Uh-huh. Um, and so even when you see a, one of the McQueen performances he didn't get to do was uh, The Bodyguard, which was, from what I understand, meant to be him and Diana Ross. That would have been cool. And then it winds up being Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston. And Kevin Costner does. Because that, apparently that film had been maybe about to be made for a decade. Right. Or even well before that. Because The Bodyguard came out in, like, 88 or something. Yeah. Um, but um, And he'd been dead for a long time at that point. Yeah, no, he, 92 even. Yeah, yeah, it is even later than that. But um, but anyhow, we should probably start with the film. Yeah, yeah. it starts with uh, the film is so packed with incident that you have to pay attention during the credits. You have to pay attention during the credits, but even if you do pay attention during the credits, you uh, still won't understand what has happened. Right. Fortunately, they do recap, recap, reiterate, and then we find out that it wasn't what it seemed. And whatnot. So and that's kind of a big theme in this movie is that you don't know what you're watching, and then you, the, you kind of know who can be trusted and who can't right off the bat, but right. you don't know why, and you don't mm-hmm. know if it's on purpose. Like that's the thing. Like there's a politician in this movie played by Robert Vaughn, mm-hmm. who the whole time I was like, who does he look like? Who does he look like? And it turns out he looks like Kyle MacLachlan. So Robert Vaughn is he's a schmoozer. And he's using the cops basically as his personal security force. But he's also, he feels shady as hell. Mm -hmm. And you can't tell if the things that go wrong are because of him or because of something else. And it turns out he is actually not at, like, he's, he made some bad choices and, 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 and wanted some things that were sort of, not correct or good, but he doesn't. He's not the one who causes big fuck ups no. in this thing, even though it seems for a minute like so he is. He's Walter Chalmers. Is um, is I was about to call him Napoleon Solo. <laughs> is Robert Vaughn? Robert Vaughn, and he is a social climber. The first time that we see him, he's at a party, right? Early in the film, the, the opening credits uh, have. Johnny Ross yes. escaping the outfit in Chicago. Yeah, so we have a, a we have we know the name Johnny Ross. Mm-hmm. He's a Chicago mobster. 
he there there's an attempt to kill him, right. but he bounces and he gets out of there. And the next scene we see is one of the three the two detectives who are part of uh Frank Bullitt's team, it's Delgetti and Stanton. Um they wake him up. He's apparently been up all night. And uh, they go to his apartment, which is a really... F- you, it's the, we, we, sorry, there's too many hymns. Bullet is woken up by yeah. Del Getty at who knows when on well, Saturday morning. in the morning. It's not that early. Because he said, when did you get to bed? Four o'clock. Five. So it's, yeah, right. it's five. five. He, got it, he got to bed at five in the morning. Del Getty, you know, lets himself in, drinks some orange juice, and right. gives Frank some hell. And Frank says, shut the fuck up and drink your orange juice. <laughs> because they're being called in by Chalmers, who is a senator mm-hmm. looking at the presidency. I don't know if I'd call him a social climber. He he is schmoozing to a ridiculous degree. Because he wants to be president. There's and- a lot of, as I said, um, McQueen was really struggling. Not struggling. He was striving for realism here. Mm-hmm. And so even... There are bits of conversation that we get from this party that we're attending. Yeah, we start by going to this party to at like, at a, at basically a country club. It's not right. a country club. It's basically it's those people. Right. Yeah, we talk. We listen to the how the there's a there's warm, warm weather in Orinda that is perfect for growing roses. And I'm like, that's not wrong. Right. <laughs> but it was one of those authentic little touches. As people who've been to Arinda, it's yeah. like, yeah, that, that's right. You know, that's... And those are the people who live in Arinda. Right. The people who would go to something like this. Yes. Yeah. He, I mean, you got to keep in mind, when you're going to run for president, both parties, the right. first question that you are asked by the party is, how much money? Who in your phone uh-huh. will give you money right now? So that's what he's doing. Right. He's building up a, a, you know, a fundraising base. He's, so Chalmers is he's running a subcommittee. He has this witness. He's he's gotten Johnny Ross. He's going to use him as a witness at his here at this hearing, and he wants Bullet and his two. Uh, well, he wants Bullet. Right. He doesn't give a fuck about anybody else. Well, he, but, wants I mean, he wants Bullet's crew to be watching. He this guy. Ju- he doesn't even want that. I don't think he All wants right. Frank Bullet to be in charge of making sure that this dude will be able to testify mm-hmm. on Monday. He's had a cheap motel on, in the Embarcadero. And um, Frank is like, okay, fine, whatever. And he, they go there, and it's him and yeah, Stanton and Del Getty. Um, and they go, and he, this guy that ostensibly is Johnny Ross, y'all, it's not, <laughs> um, is there without a fucking care in the world, windows open to whatever. I'm like, right. you're... And that's the first thing that Bullard has an issue with. It's like, you know, yeah, who put you up here? Who this put you ridiculous. up here? This was, this was Chalmers' pick of, right. of a location. Um, if I'm Bullet and I'm really in charge, the first thing I do is I move him and I don't tell Chalmers where he's at. You'll, right. you'll see him at the, at the test, uh, to testify on Monday. You mm. don't need to know where he is until then. Right. But he doesn't do that. Um, he looks around, he closes the windows, he says, all you have to do is stay away from the windows. Um, Especially at night. Dell's going to take the first round, Stan's going to take the second, mm-hmm. call me and I'll come in for third. That'll get us, Right. We'll get, we'll get you to Monday, and that'll be it. And then he bounces. <laughs> he's like, he's got other things to do. Um, and at 1 a.m. Sunday morning... 1 a.m. Sunday morning. 
stands calling um calls bullet because he's received a call from the front desk that two people want to come up. Chalmers is one of them. That's the call. It says that Chalmers is one of them. That's the call he received. Chalmers is one of the people. Bullet's like, Chalmers at one o'clock in the morning. That's not. No, it isn't. Don't let him up. I'll be there in five minutes. By the time he gets there, all hell has broken loose. There are cop cars. There's ambulances. Ross, even though he was told to stay away from the door, Mm -hmm. um, goes and undoes the latch. By the time Stan realizes that it's unlatched, the door is pushed open, and there is a man with white hair and a tall man with glasses standing there. The man with the white hair has a gun. A shotgun. A shotgun. He's able to assemble and disassemble. Shoots Stanton in the leg. Mm -hmm. It's a Winchester pump action. That's specifically what they say. Uh, Shoots Stanton in the leg, and then shoots... um, Johnny, what's his name, Ross, uh, in the shoulder, uh-huh. but I'll, it's a shotgun, right? So it gets him all Spiders in the face everywhere. and the shoulder. And something I have to warn sensitive viewers about is that it's the camera doesn't turn away from this. No. It's, especially for 1968, it's pretty graphic. It is pretty graphic, but it's very movie blood. Like, it's right. so red that it looks like paint. It's, to me, to Right. Me. It's matter of fact <laughs> is what I... Appreciate about it. It's not gratuitous in any way. We're not lingering on this. But the violence in the film, and again, coming from a generation of people who had seen westerns where people got shot and they didn't bleed at all. Yeah. This must have been pretty surprising. Yeah. So they all go to the hospital. Um, Stanton is is sat with with his wife. Uh, a young pretty woman who that bullet puts eyes on and right. is like, this is uh, this is now personal. These are my men. Right. This is this is fucked up. A um, Ross goes into surgery with a black surgeon. That's kind of important, but kind of not. But kind of important. He's played by a man named George, George Brown without an e at the end of his name. Say your joke. Because the man won't let him have an e at the end of his name. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I stepped on it while we were watching it, but it was only because I didn't. I just saw his name in the credits, and I was like, why doesn't he have an E at the end of his name? You said that, and I didn't know he was a black man, so I didn't get it. So I had dinner with my friend Alan, who was a black man, and he thought, uh, this was yesterday, we had lunch, rather, and he thought that was hysterical. I was like, there we go, finally. (laughs) Needed some recognition for how funny that was. And he, and this... In 1968, black surgeon, he's got to be, he, he's put up with some shit. Right. Um, and he does get him patched up, but they're not sure that he's going to make it it's through. 50 50, because um, he did take a shot directly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like buckshot, so it's not even it's, yeah, just no, hanging it's the up shoulders here. everywhere. There's, he's got a broken orbital bone. There's, right. Yeah. His, so his, his head and his upper thorax are fucked up, which we hear about later right. in the autopsy, because y'all. He doesn't, he doesn't make, make it. it. Nope. Um, so, uh, Bullet's there. He gets some food, some milk, and a peanut butter and jelly sandwich from the nurses. Uh, and he thwarts a second. He sees the the man with white hair because Stanton is able to give him. There's a man with white hair and another man. Uh, he had a pump action Winchester mm-hmm. shotgun. Like th- he gave him yeah, as much information as, right. as he could before he kind of goes to sleep. Um, and 
So Bullet sees that guy, stops him, chases him out of the hospital, but doesn't catch up with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sort of deals with Chalmers, who shows up and is like, my witness. And he's like, uh, my witness, actually. And Chalmers wants a new, he wants like the head Which of the I, surgery to be right. in charge of this. this uh, he's too young and inexperienced, he says, of this surgeon that just saved this man's life. But what he means is, he's too black. And I, I love that scene, the way it's shot, because the hospital, which they actually shot at, um, and it's horrible to think that this is the way that it used to be mm-hmm. in 1968, is essentially one large open space yeah. with curtains yeah. set up to divide uh, into separate areas. And... um and there's one office there, and they're able to hear both Bullet and the surgeon hear Robert, Ch- uh, or rather Chalmers, make these excuses about why he wants another surgeon there. Right. The nurse is defending how really great this surgeon mm-hmm. is. He's our best. Right. She says, and he cuts her off. Right. And I and there's a, a look exchange between the surgeon and Bullet, like, oh, I, you know, he's been here before. He knows what this is about. Yeah. And. Bullets looking at him, he doesn't know how to express that, but he does express a great deal of faith in him with something he entrusts him to after. Yes. Um, so after Chalmers leaves and um, the second atta- assassination attempt is thwarted, uh, he does, uh, Ross codes mm-hmm. and he does die. Um, By the way, these were actual nurses. And an actual, I believe, anesthesiologist that was were used oh, in the scene. In his, again, his attempt for realism was instead of having actors and coaching them through what to do, just it's just to have, have actual people right. who know how to respond uh-huh. to the situation. Yeah, do what you would do in this situation. Right. That's cool. Um, so he does say, hey, can you buy me some time because I want... Chalmers is going to just wrap this up uh-huh. and I want who killed him. Right. I, I want to close this murder. Um, and the doctor is like, yeah, kind of fuck that guy. <laughs> it's kind of his attitude. So he's like, his chart could go missing, but not for very long. Like I can buy you a couple of days. He goes, yeah. just give me till Monday, um, Sunday night. Right. So it's really one day right, yeah. <laughs> that we're talking about. So he does do that. And, um, bullet and Dell spirit, the body to the morgue as a John Doe, um, and they both know that. Like, it's not like only one person knows. So if something happens to him, then, right. then, then this dude just goes away. So he goes then to the ho- the the back to the hotel room to look around, and he's just like, "Oh, and Stanton has said he opened the thing. He opened the he opened the chain. The chain was right. unlocked. Yeah, Stanton's able to give him that piece of information. And that's really what propels it forward." Yeah. Because then his question becomes, well, why on earth did he put himself into danger? Right. So he's trying to keep the investigation open because, yeah, he knows that they're just going to close it down um, once they know this guy is dead, which is wild. I'm like, but you have a dead body. Why is that not? <laughs> but uh, and then there's an informant that says that there's word that Ross is actually alive and in town trying to flee because he stole a bunch of money from the mob. Right. <laughs> like that was that's why they were after him because he was like an accountant he was like a money guy for them and And he was skimming money from mm -hmm. them uh, to a remarkable degree well apparently maybe 
it wasn't that remarkable until he realized he had to get the fuck out. Mm. And then it was a lot all at once. And then a shootout. And he, you know, ran. And um, he finds out from the 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 cabbie, who's uh-huh. played by Robert Duvall, right. that had brought Ross. We had seen him earlier because he had to go. He, he had written down a couple of things that he had to do. He was supposed to go. And we see this. We see him go pick, try and pick up a message at a hotel, but right. it's not there. And then he has to, and then he calls a number. And so he says, um, he, he says, I pulled over here and he went and made a long distance call. And he goes, how do you know it's long distance? And he goes, he put in a lot of change, which is <laughs> not a thing that you would know right. anymore. And this is something <laughs> like, that's, that's 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 person watching thing. this film will go, what? What? Yeah. He I put in a lot it. of change. And so they run the, he runs the records on that and finds out it was to a hotel mm-hmm. in San Mateo. So then this is the chase. Right. So after he gets dropped off by the cab, back to wherever his car is, he drives a Ford Mustang, 1968 Ford Mustang, brand new car, because it's 1968. (laughs) Um, He gets in his car, and he kind of clocks that he's being watched, Mm -hmm. and he buckles his seatbelt, and he's driving, and he knows that there's this charger following him. He can't see who's in the charger. We can see... That it's the murderers. Right. <laughs> like, we see that. So he, we go for about, like I said, like two, three minutes of him being followed by the charger. And then he figures a way to get behind him. And then he gets behind him. Now the charger is being followed by the Mustang. That is when the charger driver, who is played by Bill Hickman, mm-hmm. he is a stunt driver. Primarily, if you look at Bill Hickman's, like he was an actor in this right. film, he played a character, but most of what he did in his career was stunt driving. That was what he did. So we see him plug, buckle his seatbelt up, and then, as we said before, it is on, and they fucking tear ass for eight <laughs> minutes through through San Francisco. At one point, the hitman puts his gun together and starts firing at McQueen's car. Uh Um, But he doesn't, he hits the windshield, but he doesn't hit McQueen. And then um, at the end of this chase, after a very long time, and it's like they're in a totally different city by then. They're not, they're almost in a different city by then. San Francisco's not very big, seven by seven. Uh, The Charger does, um, run into some farming equipment and does explode. Right. And then, in a fucking quick-style move, McQueen does a U-turn and almost takes that Mustang into a ditch. It's close. This is the ditch that your parents warn you about, about being found in. It's very deep. It's deep. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And during this thing, there are other cars involved. There's a Mm. motorcycle that goes down. That's Bud Eakins, who's the other driver of McQueen's car during a lot of this. Uh, McQueen did a lot of the driving himself, but not all of it. Because, yeah, he, he you couldn't risk it. He had to finish this. <clears> but he did a lot of it right. simply because, as we said, they were out of drivers. There were basically yeah. three stunt drivers in the country. This has... And they needed more than this that. This scene has the, also the virtue of being, like, probably one of the first attempts at doing anything like this. There yeah. had been scenes... 
that were done in comedy films with stunt cars mm-hmm. and car chases. But again, it was the cars were over cranked, or the, rather, the footage was over cranked. Right, speed you them speed up. them up. Right, these cars were going mm-hmm. up to 125 miles an hour, right. and and again on streets. I feel very sorry for the cameraman who is in a Corvette in going 120 Corvette, miles an hour. Strapped down, and you can see they are the. the reading more about this, the care they had to take to have people running up and down the street to make sure that nobody showed up on the set doing this very early at times in the morning, having yeah. to control the other automobiles that were allowed in the street were other drivers yeah. um, who who's just get out of the way when we come by. That's yeah. basically the directions. Um, but it... Yeah, this is an achievement. Yeah, and um, one of the things that that vignette talked about, too, that I hadn't really thought about, but is pretty true, is that a car chase is a distinctly filmic, it's a cinematic thing. You don't get car chases in books. No. You don't get car chases in radio. Like, it's just, it is, you have to see it. It's it's a thing for film. Right. Um, So at the end of that, he is convinced that he's got his, like, th- that was the hitman. Right. So now we're on Sunday. We're on Sunday. So at the same time this chase is going on, probably, Chalmers goes to the church that the captain of police goes to. Who's played by Simon Oakland. To talk to him. Yeah, one of the great characters. There's a lot of character actors in this film. Yeah. Norman He's, Fell is yeah, in this Norman film. Norman Fell is Vic in this Tabak film. Vic Tabak is in this movie. Yeah. It's very interesting to watch them all. And basically says, where's my witness? I'm serving you with a writ of habeas corpus. Which means he had a judge sign a writ at, on a Sunday. Right. Well, so that he can stop him at church to give him the, the To writ. give him this. And Bennett is like, I'm going to church with my family. But then he pulls in Bullet and Delgatti, or Delgetti, along with Baker, who is basically Chalmers' lapdog. So yeah. Baker, Captain Baker is Norman Fell, and you see him mostly driving Chalmers around. Right. So he feels like, this is the ship I'm tying myself to. If if tides rise and he rises, I'm going to rise with him. But it's a little, ooh, it's gross. Um, and... Um, that, I think, is when Bullet is like, does Chalmers run this investigation or do I? And and the captain just basically, or the, is he, yeah, he's the captain. There's a lot of captains. The captain is like, yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm giving you full leeway. Right. Now, there's an interesting kind of aura about this film. So we're only seeing a, a weekend of this man's, of, of Frank mm-hmm. Bullet's life. But we know that he is famous in San Francisco in as much as Chalmers is, wants him. Wants to be associated with him. Wants to be associated with him. You and I would make a great team. Like, it's going to look good with your name involved in this. Like, so we don't know what any right. of that's about. We don't get... I was like, at some point, they're going to tell us, like, he got a medal for such and such, or he took down this serial killer or whatever. Mm-hmm. Nope. Right. Who the fuck knows? <laughs> I think that what you get from this character is that Bullet is the kind of guy who just doesn't let go. He's going to make it very personal, and he's like a pit bull. He will stick his teeth into it, and he doesn't let go. Yeah. 
And that's kind of the thing that Chalmers is trying to present himself as Mr. Law and Order and yeah. going after the mob. He wants to be associated with that. And now he's angry because his case is going all kinky wumpus. Yeah. Like, wait, what's going on? My witness is dead. He's, you know, and yeah. how did that happen? And yeah. He's not. And Bullet finally reveals in, that Ross is dead. He's in this building. Right. He's downstairs as a John Doe. Give me a day because I want to close right. this case. Um, I'm almost positive that I just killed his hitman, but. What? Why? What's yeah. going? What's happening? All that he knows, and he's able to tell this to his captain. It's like, well, they were shooting at me. Yeah. So obviously they, they were shooting at Pump Winchester, Winchester, which is exactly what Stanton said killed Ross. Right. And what, no doubt, the autopsy will will show. Right. Which they're doing right now because they are doing that in the building downstairs because that's how we hear that his orbital bone was fractured and things like that. We hear part of the autopsy. Um. So he's like, you can have tomorrow, till tomorrow. And so then Bullet decides to investigate this long-distance phone call that was made to a hotel in San San, San San Mateo. Mateo. Now, here's the rub. His car doesn't work anymore because he did use it in in a chase that did involve a lot of damage to said vehicle. So, um... He needs his girlfriend to take him in her right, little car. Right, there's a very funny bit where he goes to the motor pool and asks for a car. And they're like, we're out of cars. We're out of cars. And then he watches Chalmers being driven away in what's probably the last car. The last one, yeah. By Baker. Right. So Baker's like, driving oh, it, yeah. So, yes, he's being driven around by his uh, beautiful girlfriend. This is Jacqueline Bissett. Her name is Kathy. Right. She is, it looks like a chemist or um, maybe an engineer. engineer of some right. sort. Yeah. Because he goes and visit her, visits her at work and she needs him to look at charts to give her information. And he like can't, she's looking for water displacement numbers. And he's like, I don't know. I lost my place. <laughs> like Nobody's perfect. Which is a very cute scene between the two of them. Yes. They and apparently then, got along very well making this film. That makes sense. The, the story for years, there was a rumor that they were having an affair during the making of it. And she's like, no, we just really enjoyed because she was new to the film business yeah at okay. this point and so but because of her appearance and the fact that she'd had a couple of turns where she really did steal the show yeah. movies that she was in um she was getting a lot of attention which is probably why she got such high billing also gotcha okay yeah yeah that makes sense because she's really not in i mean mm. she, they that's the thing like you well he's doing this during the day He's going out with her every night. Right. Like, they're going to fancy parties and dinners. And that becomes important, too, because she obviously is... I don't want to say... This sounds really horrible, but for the purposes of the story, she's out of his league in a lot of respects. She, I don't want to say... We don't want to say out way. of his league. What we will say is they exist in different social strata. Right. And... It seems like they both know that at the beginning of the movie. Right. And then she finds out that, oh, <laughs> she didn't really take all of that into account because mm. of this scene. So they go to this hotel. They He gets the phone number for or the, the, the room number. Um, in this huge motor court. This, it's yeah, enormous. this big motor court. And they get walked over um, and the the like a, a doorman or whatever mm-hmm. opens the, the door for him and there's a dead woman. She's been garroted. Um and so he like is like call this, that and the other. He tell you know, he's using the 
the hotel phone to bring in the police ambulance. She sees these cars coming in and she goes and finds him and sees this scene and how calm he is. And she loses her shit. She's just like, you live in a sewer. How can you... What I like, like is, how do you not have any feelings about this? this? Their dynamic is interesting to me because it involves people, like you're saying, on a different social strata. Yeah, not uh, necessarily out of one's league, just ex- different I mean, life very experiences. Old exper- I know, uh, kind of term. I know, um, but they seem to get along really well. There's a good early scene where they go out to dinner, and they exchange looks but not when the other ones they don't exchange looks with each other it's like he looks at her when she's not looking yeah she looks at him when he's not looking yeah and so that and they're with other people talking to the interview so he can in whatever world Mm -hmm. she wants him to fit into he fits into it right exactly because he fits in wherever he needs to that's sort of his thing right but when she sees the fact that his baseline is a world of absolute horrors he is a homicide detective, exactly. ma'am. Early in the film. Because she, it's not just, he's not just right. an SFPD detective no, or whatever. No. He's a, specifically a homicide detective. He, very early in the film, she asks him what he's, you know, why he's making these phone calls late at night. Mm. She's spending the night over with him. That's right. And he, and then she just goes, well, it's something you can't tell me about. And he's like, no, nope, I can't tell nope. you. Nope. Um, it's none of your, it's a, first of all, it's none of your business. Well, he doesn't put it that way, but. <laughs> none, yeah. <laughs> but, um, she's sort of mocking him, well, you never tell me anything. Uh, you don't want to know. And then when you see her reaction, when she sees what he actually deals with. This is why. And we also know that he, as a character, and this is something the Queen covers really well in his performance, is that he compartmentalizes. Oh, 100%. So it's he like, this happens to. at work. Now I'm going to go over and have dinner with you and your yep. friends, and I'm going to be charming. And I'm going to be charming, and I'm and not going to be, yeah, right. I'm not going to be maudlin and horrified. Because you can't live like that. You have to. If this is your job, you mm-hmm. have to compartmentalize. Right, exactly. You have to. But, or yeah. you can't have any kind of life. The, the fact that she lives in her, she drives her cute car, and she wears her nice dresses, and and this is not complaining about her character, oh, no. but saying... She's not a homicide detective. No, she is She's living... a well-heeled, right. well-educated woman with many prospects. Right. <laughs> but the thing is that she lives with, and I don't want to misuse this word, the privilege of not having to see what he sees over there. You're absolutely not misusing the word. That's exactly what it is. So when she, she sees it... like non-homicide detective right. privilege. The understructure of what is going on all the time all in the this time. city that yeah. he has to deal with is horrifying to her seeing it this way. And she's going, why don't you react to it? Why don't you... And again, yeah. she's not seeing what a gift he has and being able to go, yeah. dead person, yeah. that's that's the job. Yeah. And he's not... He doesn't disrespect the dead. No. He's not like, I don't care about this. No. But he cannot break down crying every time no. he sees and we a see dead body. Early on when his detective or his... Uh, I guess it's his... Detective, I'm not sure. Is a uh, part Sta- of his crew. Stanton, gets sh- yeah. Shot. Yeah. He there's again not ever expressing nope. it, but there's a but look. But you on can his see face. him. He bites. You can see right. him clench his jaw. Yeah. When he sees his Stanton's wife sitting with him, right? He's just like, 
No, it's fucking personal now. Right, exactly. It's personal now, which is why he wants to close this case. Yeah. It's more for Stanton than whoever this rando in the hotel room was. He's never going to be able to go back to the job that he did before. Right, yeah. He's not. I mean, if he was shot, leg, shot with a shotgun uh, in the leg, you're on death duty for at least a year yeah. and maybe forever. Right. He may lose that leg. It's 1968. Right. <laughs> like, I mean, they couldn't say the guy who got shot in the shoulder. In the shoulder, right. Um, um, anyway. Yeah. So, and she's like, what will happen to us? And he, they, they are, they are on a sort of an impasse. He doesn't know if they're done or what. But he's like, I have to finish what I'm doing. (laughs) So um, he, the luggage from this hotel room is sent to evidence. And he and Delgetti are going through it. They're in the evidence locker and they're going through it. They're like, hand me an envelope. We're going to put this. And they find a fuck ton of traveler's checks, like a lot of money in traveler's checks. Also, but they, what they don't audience, find travelers checks. Yeah, but what they also right. don't find is passports. Uh-huh. There's ticket folders and places for passports, but there are no passports. And um, finally, they are able to, to to the travelers checks are made out to Albert and Dorothy Rennick. Mm-hmm. So this woman that he found killed was Dorothy Rennick, and when Bullet requests. Their passport applications, he's got the names from Chicago, they need to be faxed. And this, weirdly, there's an 11-minute chase scene. But the scene where they're waiting for a fax to come through might be the most thrilling scene in the movie. Because it's Bullet goes back to the station, he's uh-huh. there with his captain, Norman Fell is there, Chalmers shows up, mm-hmm. and he's like, you need to tell me where Ross is immediately right and they already the 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 passport um photo of dorothy rennick has come through and it is in fact the deceased woman in the hotel room so they're waiting they're waiting and um i believe that bullet has a a hint of an idea of what is about to happen but he's not going to say anything they're just going to wait for this telefax pour out one line at a time we were part of the writers group run by our good friend Melissa McDonough and there was a gentleman there who wrote a poem about this scene oh that's funny And he, I don't remember that but yeah he wrote it Basically, the, the approach of the poem was about extinct technologies and how that scene, to a modern audience, they'll go, what's going on? And to a person who's able to remember what it was like, it yeah. is very, like, it is. It is, key, it is. it is keyed up. It is. And nobody, everybody in there is just a lot of... Fuck you, no fuck you. But they're like not saying that. They're just and they're just waiting. Right before a shootout in a Sergio Leone movie. Yeah. They're all just eyeing each other like who's yeah. gonna make a break for this doll when they find out the information that comes through. Here? So they pull out the thing and he hands it to Bullet and Bullet mm-hmm. goes, You had us guarding the wrong man. The man that was killed, who is in the the morgue downstairs under John Doe, uh-huh. who was being Portrayed as a Johnny Ross is, in fact, this Albert um, Rennick. He is a used car salesman from Chicago 
who was given a bunch of money in traveler's checks. They were going to fly to Rome after this, uh-huh. he, and, he and Dorothy. Um, but he was basically paid off by Ross to both avoid the mob, who was the ones that killed him, and um, uh, Chalmers. He doesn't right. want to deal with him either. So... So that's basically like so that's Bullet's final thing where right. I'm, he's like fuck you I'm not dealing with you anymore you ha- you sent us to a hotel with a man who wasn't even who you thought he was so you don't know what the fuck is going on and I'm done dealing with you and he just kind of bounces so then he realizes that Ross must have Rennick's passport and the ticket to Rome and he'll be flying out just bouncing right um. Because nobody knows that this dude is dead, and this gets him out of the country, away from all of the sources of his uh, headaches, Chalmers and the entire ass mob. Although I don't know why, I don't know that I'd go to Rome if well, the mob it. is what he I'm running from. That's England. right, he does. He that's right because they yeah he finds out he has changed it to London. It's right. a, he changed the ticket to London, um, and at SFO. They uh-huh. go to the airport. Delgadi and Bullet watch the Rome gate, and then um, Ross is switched to London flight, and they find that out, and that plane is ordered to return to the terminal, and they, they're they going to unload the passengers for a 45-minute delay, which is wild, because now if there's a 45-minute right. delay, just get comfortable in your little chair. Uh, Chalmers tries to suggest to Bullet that they could, like, make this work for both of them or whatever, and Bullet's like, eat a pile of dicks. He doesn't (laughs) threaten him exactly, but he tells him, you need to leave right now. He says, bullshit. Right. He swears. He's not not climbing, he's not looking for a different position, he's not looking for a way to further his career, because Chalmers notifies him, this is the way that careers are made. He's no, this is not about the career. This is about his his friend who's in the hospital. Yep. Who might and a murderer, like a multiple murderer. I killed yeah. two people, right? There's two other people who are dead for no the reason. The two hitmen are dead. Right, which is the ones Stan's responsible wounded, for. Stan's uh-huh. and this couple is dead. Right, exactly. So, yeah, we've got four deaths and a, and a, and a significant wounding. Right. I think that's our body count. Um... Uh, Bullet gets on the plane and clocks um, Ross, and Ross clocks Bullet and flees out the back, mm-hmm. jumps out of the sort of emergency right. uh, door in the back of the plane onto the tarmac, which is a long way down, and he definitely could have broken his leg. Um, Bullet jumps after him, and then they're running around on the fucking which tarmac of scene, SFO. Apparently, which makes me nervous. <laughs> the Queen was more worried about that than he was about the actual car chase. No, that makes sense because they were actually. It looked yeah. like they were actually on SFO's runway. Right, and yeah. so McQueen actually knows he really knows a lot about handling a car, and he had a great deal of faith in mm-hmm. his own abilities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. He was a car race, like right. he did race cars, but <laughs> and motorcycles. Yeah, but as far as. Running, he says, there were times when, he goes, my first concern was I was going to get run over by these wheels. And the second concern is that I was literally, like, having to hug the ground because I was getting sucked up. There is a point when he, there is a 
flame coming at right. him, and he drops down, covers his ears, and then waits for the two back wheels to right. pass him on either side of his body. No, thank you. Right, and that's when he said he almost got lifted up just by the suction. The, of the suction, back. yeah. Right. You don't. You, people aren't meant to be under a plane that's moving. No. Like, just not. Yeah, that was really. I was like, ooh, your ears, because <laughs> <laughs> it's. I also know that planes oh, are yeah, I've been, real fucking loud. I was again consider considering that I just had my fifty fourth birthday. Uh, there was a flight I took when I was about 11 or 12 to from L.A. to uh, Oakland. Yep. And for whatever reason, they would let you go out. A lot of airport planes or airports have you board on right. the on the runway. And, but we were waiting out there while like. the plane was taxiing. No, oh, thank you. And that made the most horrible ear-splitting noise ever. And mm-hmm. I tried to keep my hands off my ears. No. And then, no, it got to be too much. Like, it literally felt like I was going to start bleeding from my ears. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they, frankly, mm, shouldn't have let you guys out there like that. Have, which is Without I, ear protection, that's crazy. I don't crazy. see that happening now. I don't, I, I don't think that could happen now. But, again, this is this is back in the day, so to speak. Um, but yes, so he, he chases, there's the chasing starts at the airstrip and then it goes into the, um, the, uh, gosh, what is it called? The area where everyone's waiting for their plane, the, the, um, um, like uh, gates. Yeah. Or the terminal. He goes into the terminal. Oh yeah. He's about to escape out of the door. Yeah. He shoots a cop, uh, uh, Ross does. Yeah. Shoots a cop, trying to get free. The doors are shut behind him, and then he just gets shot. Well, and, and he fires. Mm-hmm. He, he literally kills a uniform right. police officer or security guard. I can't tell, but I think it was a police officer. Um, and then raises his gun at McQueen, and McQueen fires right. two in his body because that's right. So now there's five people dead. Yeah, he <laughs> didn't necessarily was the six, right? Because that. That cop's probably oh, it's dead. Right, six. Jeez. <laughs> um, and then yeah, and then you hear like the the people calming other people or screaming right. in the in the terminal. Or I wonder what he did. It was one of those. Just like what has happened? Hey, extras, let's right. not. Let's not. You don't need to talk. This is a this is non-speaking part. <laughs> um, and. Then Chalmers drives away in a limousine with a bumper sticker that says, support your local police. He's with Norman Fell again, Captain right. Baker again. And then Monday morning, Captain well, Bootlicker. after all of this, this is Sunday night, uh-huh. middle of the night. It's probably a red-eye plane. Um, Monday morning, Bullet goes home, opens his door to uh, Jacqueline Bissett, naked in his bed. So I guess they're going to be all right. Well, he says... <laughs> At the close of her speech about how can you live like this or how can you deal with this, I don't know what this means for our future. Yeah. He tells her our future begins today. Yeah. And so he's leaving her this sort of, not an ultimatum necessarily, but... It's not an ultimatum, but it is like... Now that you've seen what I've done, you make a decision now. I I know. I know everything. Now, you know everything. Right. So I can live in your world. Can you live knowing and you knowing know, I'm, I'm that I go asking into my, you? I'm not bringing. I don't right, want I'm you, not in my bring world. you into my world. But can you live with what I do? And apparently, she can, which yeah. is actually a very nice ending to the film because you. I frankly get worried about this guy going. God, how much of this is he going to be able to take? Right. It is nice that he has a nice, right. smart, 
sort of um, witty lady that he gets to spend time with. It's I think that's good. Right. No, that's good to for pull him. him out of that that thing that he's just yeah. dealing with this kind of violence all the time. Yeah. So what did you think of it as a film? I thought it was really good, and I think this might be my favorite McQueen performance uh, that I've seen. Right. Um, we're gonna see The Great Escape, I think. Yeah. And I think that is the last Steve McQueen we'll see on this list. And like I said, I had a I I don't know about him. I, f- I feel more positively about him now than I do about Cary Grant, so <laughs> I don't know. No, I thought he was really good in this. I, I thought he was funny. Uh-huh. I th- The car chase was really good, but th- th- that wasn't even, like I said, like that was a thrilling part, but right. this movie is full of thrilling pieces. Yes, I like the, I like these movies that are um, finite. Right. They're like a weekend. Like, I like that. I That, to me ratchets up the intensity. Yeah, and I, I find it, and I know that this is a, I don't want to be insulting towards the series of films that you really like, but we saw a trailer for the Fast and Furious film. Fast X. And and I guess it's Fast the 10, new one. but and it's, it's just like, after having watched this going, these guys were really in danger, it's kind of like, well, there's that's, no danger. That, that's, that looks fun. Yeah. <laughs> I don't... It looks like they're on a ride. Right. Yeah, no. It, it, it does. Even it, it, in the fifth one where they're dragging that giant safe through the cities right. of, the city, the streets of Rio, and you're just like, well, how the fuck many people did you kill? Right. Like, a lot. This, in this one, too, like, or like like this versus like a bad boys sequence right. where you're just like oh yeah the at the end boys, of that scene right. in bad boys 2 where they're the, like oh it's lucky that nobody died and i'm like Jesus. well that's a weird retcon because people definitely fucking just died right. if what they just did and i also like actually happened something that i appreciate about this film is that there's also a limited number of fatalities yeah and i don't cuz the, and they're all uh-huh. around this crime, mm-hmm. right? Like, we're talking about the people that were paid off right. by this mobster, the mobster, the hitmen for the mob, and some cops. Yeah. It's it's not, there's not, even though they drive recklessly and dangerously through the streets of San Francisco... Right. Nobody dies. Um, and then they have a shootout in the airport, and nobody dies. Well, the, <laughs> nobody outside right. of the people involved in the shootout at the airport dies. I like the idea that it's not going to be, because one of the things that was always sort of irritating about watching uh, the sort of action movies in the 80s, near watching something like Lethal Weapon, the body count is so ridiculously high. Yeah. People are killed at random. Yeah. Uh, I remember... Uh, Roger Ebert saw the Schwarzenegger movie Commando, and he said, "I, I said, I think I counted over a hundred people that get killed in a ten-minute scene, where he uh, Schwarzenegger is uh, breaking out of a like he's trapped in a woodshed or something on this um, on this island, and he's using the implements there to take out this entire army of people." Right, and you're thinking. Like, how many people has he killed over the course of his career? Thousands now? Yeah. What is... Yeah. It's it's ridiculous. It's... Yeah. And this was... It's too much. This felt really realistic, like it could be what a person experiences in their life. Right. And as a, a, you know, a cab, but as a quote-unquote decent cop, Mm -hmm. he's not... He's trying to protect 
the people of his city. Like right, he's exactly. he's trying to see like there's literally a murderer loose. Let me figure out and let, one of the interesting things also about him, the producer, because he produced the film as well, his production company, McQueen's production company, produced yeah. the film, is the fact that his San Francisco is very diverse. Yeah. He yeah. he's uh, you know the, the the he doesn't establish many relationships, but the one he does establish with the doctor, and he has that instant sympathy when he sees the doctor being. You know, why are you questioning this yeah. guy? And yeah. we all know why. We, he's we know him. why. There's yeah, we don't, and we don't even have to. Mm-hmm. Belabor the point, right? Everybody knows, and it wasn't even tokenism necessarily because there are other black characters in the story. Yeah, and so it 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 makes this film feel more realistic and more like it's the actual city because we spent the day before in San Francisco. Yes, yeah, and so it was interesting watching this film being that was shot there and going, yeah, this is kind of what the city is it's like. What the city is like, yeah, yeah. I will say I really like the soundtrack too. It's uh-huh. by Lalo Schifrin, who also did Dirty Harry, and um, heavy on the hi hat, man. Right. Heavy on the hi hat, a lot of jazz. Um, I guess uh, McQueen actually hired the band, the live band that's playing when they go to dinner, is a band that he had seen at the Trident over in Sausalito, mm. just when he was out. And so he was like, I want them in my movie. Well, <laughs> that's what Bissette was talking about. She said that one of the things that worked really well in the film is that the actors, they didn't have craft services because they were on location a lot of times, so it wasn't like a studio. There were some scenes shot in the studio. Right. A lot of scenes weren't. They would just find whatever restaurant was local, and they yeah. all crowd in. Yeah. And McQueen would like pay a little bit so that we could get a table away from the front door, so no one ever comes and goes. Wait, that's Steve and McQueen. That's Steve McQueen right? and all the famous. And Jack yeah. set and whatever else. Yeah. And that's that's Napoleon Solo. All that business, right? He didn't want any of that, so they would sit and have dinners. He, she said, in the restaurant, to, like the tables that were closest to the kitchen, so they could make a quick exit if they needed to. And she learned a lot about being famous from Steve McQueen. Interesting. But on top of that, because he was really very good with the staff, they got really great service. And she goes, yeah, every time that she would go back to San Francisco, if she had an excuse to, she's going back to these restaurants because they all remembered her and they all had a really good time. So it's like he wasn't just the person taking care of the crew as a character in the film. He took care of the crew as the producer of the film as well. Right, right. Um, famous for the turtleneck. Yes, which so that's an iconic look. The quick draw look thing that he got too. Oh, um, and yeah, he's. It's funny because for a lot of this movie, he's not wearing a gun, mm-hmm. and then he puts that turtleneck on and puts the holster over it, and that's like, oh shit, he means business. <laughs> and he was um, he had spent some months with Dave Toshi. Toshi, who was one of the cops who a few years later was investigating the um, uh, the Zodiac Killer. And McQueen spent a lot of time with him, and he actually got the holster thing from that guy, Uh. the quick draw holster. Uh, And so one of the points that gets brought up in one of the documentaries I saw was uh, in the film Zodiac, they kind of toned down the fact that Toshi was... He's played by Mark Ruffalo in that film. Oh, okay. He played... that. 
in real life, Toshi was more of a genuine badass than he was in that film. They wanted to sort of get away yeah, from Yeah, in that. that film, he's a big nerd. Right. But in, <laughs> in real life, he wasn't the guy that you trifled with. And, and that's really where um, McQueen drew a lot of his performance, including this guy doesn't talk that much. He just does. He just does. And yeah. so... And who's he going to talk to? Right. Exactly. I mean, he and Del have, communicate clearly. Right. They both, and they know what, but, and and when he's talking out things, right. that's fine, but. this the, the person who talks a lot in this film and is very careful about his diction, and it's a great performance from him, was Robert Vaughn. Oh, well, yeah. The Chalmers character is always talking. Right. He's never not talking. I will crucify you. I mean, he's not afraid of saying things like that to people, but. One... He'll get real close to you right. and say it quietly, though. Right. In your parlance, you blew so it. So then it just looks like he's telling you a secret. <laughs> and not that he's threatening your life again. <laughs> yeah. But he has a scene where, apparently, the written script, he's giving this speech to McQueen, who then gives a speech back to him about the decency of police officers and all that kind of business. And instead, McQueen just peeled it back to you. Walk your side of this. Work your side of the street. I'll work mine. And that's what winds up in the film. Yeah. And you're like, okay, that that said, it was kind of like what we talked about with uh, Casablanca. You got the information you needed right. to understand this guy, and then you're going on with it. And it's watching the way that other people interact with him, the fact that his captain trusts him, the fact that his partner trusts him. Yeah. The fact that his girlfriend loves him, but she's kind of put off by what he did. All of that kind of contributes to building up this character. Yeah. And what you really see him do is just reacting. He's thinking. He's His attention is going from this to that to this to that, and you can read what he's thinking a lot of the time, So, which is difficult to do as an actor. But anyhow, yes, that's a good performance, and it is a thrilling film. Yeah. Did you know he was a pallbearer for Bruce Lee? Yeah. Him that's, and James Coburn. And, and what's also interesting that's is... That's a height difference that's not great <laughs> <laughs> for pallbearers. Um, the, uh, the other thing is he's responsible for, after Bruce passed on Sifu Bruce, he began training with Chuck Norris. And uh, Chuck Norris has really fond memories in his biography about learning teaching Steve McQueen and Steve McQueen going... Hey, you should get into the movies. You don't really need to learn how to act. Just don't say too much and just sort of like look into the camera meaningfully. And that was the beginning of Chuck Norris's career. Interesting. Um, but he has a great story about Bruce Lee giving them directions because Bruce went back to, to Hong Kong to act. And he's like, I'm going to leave you with, with Chuck. Chuck's a really great guy, right? So he's training with Chuck Norris and, and uh, Bruce Lee is visiting with him. And he goes, you know, you guys need to be more flexible. He goes, well, how do you do that? He says, well, do what I did. Take a take a dance class. And so Chuck Norris and and Steve McQueen go to a ballet class. That's ab- that's absolutely right. a thing they should do. Right, because Bruce Lee was a... And football players do it, too. Right. Yeah. They do yoga. Uh, Bruce Lee and ballet. the sometimes. cha-cha champion of Japan... Of, of, excuse me, of Hong Kong. He was a cha-cha champion in Hong Kong. He was a very good dancer. And so he just told him, yeah, go to this ballet class. And Norris talks about how they were both in this, uh, you know, they were waiting in the class. They're going to join this uh, class. And there was one leotard and one tutu. 
And the minute they saw it, he says, McQueen was too quick for me. He ran over and grabbed the leotard. And I'm stuck there in a tutu doing this class. And so he says, yeah, I had great memories of him. It's a pity what happened. Because he would have loved to have worked with him. But, but uh, yeah, in the end, apparently a very interesting man who we lost way too young. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at um, his diagnosis, and he thought that uh, there are two likely sources uh, of asbestos exposure. The Marine, uh, the time on ship's engines room as as a Marine, and then also on sound stages because it was used as installation on sound stages. And maybe that's the reason why this movie was, by and large, 80% of it was shot on location. Possibly. He just, you know. But he didn't. Yeah, Jesus. And by the end, he went to a Mexican clinic um, to remove malignant tumors in his stomach and lungs. And according to the doctor present at the operation, his right lung was entirely cancerous. That's what they said about my thyroid. Entirely Mm. cancerous. No longer thyroid, only cancer. Um, Yeah, that's really a shame. Yeah, and I guess he pitched the idea for The Bodyguard in 1976, and then it was revived by Kevin Costner 16 years later. Um, he's really, is he's very interesting, and um, I might watch more. See, when I see Kevin Costner and Nate McQueen as his favorite actor, I'm like, yeah, that feels right. Except... Because I see Costner trying to do as little as possible, but mm. it doesn't work for me for with Costner. Right. Costner just feels wooden and fake. That's rough. There's just not enough. There's not enough. He's mm. not doing enough with his face. Right. I I don't know. I don't know. The, the director <laughs> of The Bodyguard tries to imitate the McQueen style of looking. There's a lot of looking in that film. And... Um, and it doesn't quite work as well. You're right. I think that Costner's best part to me is working with Brian De Palma in The Untouchables, where he played a very aw shucks kind of version of Elliot Ness. Because I could see that completely, but being this kind of... Because McQueen had... I mean, he was nicknamed the King of Cool, right? Right. But he did have this thing where it's just like he's not going to say much, he's not going to do much, but when he does act, he's really going to act out yeah um, and and his like i guess he turned down uh close encounters mm-hmm. he told spielberg i can't play somebody that has that much like emotion <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that means that he knew his limitations this is a this is a bummer for me uh-huh. if this is true he turned down clint eastwood's role in play misty for me opining that the female lead was stronger than the male if that's the reason, that's uh-huh. fucking bullshit. <laughs> I didn't say anybody. I don't disagree me. with right. the the thought, but if that means that you don't want to do it because the lady is a, a bigger badass than you, well, it's if, if you ever watch the film and it. Really, I have. I've seen yeah, it. The thing is that there's very little to like about Clint Eastwood's character. That's true. That is true. And so <laughs> if. If this care this woman, you know, uh, and I won't say who it is in case anybody in the audience wants to see it, winds up being basically a psychotic killer. Yes, yes, yes. Um, 
if she winds up being more sympathetic than your lead because he's just such a jerk with the way he treats women, then I wouldn't necessarily want that part either. Um, yeah, and I like this. This is where we'll end for uh, mm-hmm. on our on our thing with McQueen, uh, acting teacher Sanford Meisner uh, mm-hmm. of the Meisner. Uh, instead of the fl- fledgling actor, he was an original, both tough and childlike, as if he'd been through everything, but had preserved his basic innocence. Right. I think that's right. I think Indiana blonde looks will get you a long way for that innocence factor, though. I think that that, that is doing a lot of the heavy list- lifting. Um, but yeah, so that's the end. That's Bullet. It's good, guys. Y'all, yeah. it's, it's entertaining. And, and it goes quick. Like... Yes, you're going to wind up seeing though a lot of the things that you see in later films in this movie. Though you're going to go, oh, okay, this. Oh is... yes, this is a this is a basis for right. a lot of stuff, but it didn't suffer for that. Yeah, I will say this wasn't one where it was like, well, I've seen all this before. Right, exactly. It holds its own, even even oft imitated or mocked. Right. Uh, and it's been that scene's been straight up cut and put in right. other shit. As a matter of fact, <laughs> one of the funniest parodies I've seen of that chase scene was in um uh the Deadpool, the Dirty Harry film, the last one that he did. I was gonna say it looked like that was it, it it's been yeah. it's it's listed as being parodied in What's Up Doc and right. that. And I'm like parodied in Deadpool, that's weird because well, that movie didn't seem those movies didn't seem funny. But yeah, the Deadpool <laughs> is a really is probably the best of the Dirty Harry movies, at least in terms of from the beginning, uh, since the beginning, the first one. Uh-huh. But uh, the scene is parodied in that it's literally, there are people put, placing bets on which prominent figure in San Francisco is going to get killed. And then people shortening, or rather taking the risk of getting rid of the people on this list, and Harry Callahan, because of his career, is one of them. And so there's a chase scene where he and Evan Kim, his partner, are being chased by a toy car full of plastic explosives. So the parody is that you're watching a full-size car chased by a toy car loaded, a remote control car. But that's so still scary. <laughs> right, so <Literally>. scary. <laughs> loaded with plastic. And, and it's very funny because they cut a lot of the, like the same shots from Bullet into that film. And he's like, yeah, that was totally a very loving parody of how great this other movie was. Because Dirty Harry wouldn't exist had it not been for Bullet. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so that brings us to the end mm-hmm. of Bullet. Next week, we're going to... Park Jurassic here. Yep. We're going to Jurassic Park, y'all. We're going to Jurassic Park with Laura Dern and her beautiful long neck. She's going to get a big pile of poo. Well... It's going to be awesome. I'm excited. I haven't seen this movie in a long time. Several seropods with beautiful long necks. That's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I don't know where it's streaming. I'll put it in the. Right. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, but we're gonna watch that. I haven't seen it in a long time. I, I think it's probably it. been like a decade since I've seen the original movie. So I've been looking forward to it. I know it's gonna make me cry. Man, that music swells. Spielberg and his fucking music. Swells, and I'm gonna cry like a bitch. <laughs> Just what happens? Um, do you have anything uh, to recommend? Since though? yesterday, Since no, yesterday? no. I you didn't even recommend anything. 
anything no, yesterday. You just hopped on my recommendation right. yesterday. I, I had my birthday. I watched one of my favorite movies that was recommended to me by a friend, The Skull, with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. You want that to be your recommendation? I would recommend it. If you, you have Amazon, it's there. It's this very odd film that's directed by Freddie Francis, who is a cinematographer primarily. And he, um, about an antiquarian collector who finds the, the skull of the Marquis de Sade. And it's... You don't want to fuck with that. No. You want to leave that alone. Possessed by evil forces that are compelling him to do bad things. And it, it's just a very surreal, weird film. Fuck everything. Right. Pretty much. That was like his whole deal. Um, interesting. Do you, I didn't yeah, realize it, that's who the skull belonged to. Yeah, it's a very fun... It's. It was done by Amicus Studios, who was a rival of Hammers, and they do... It just is a really visually interesting movie on top of everything else. And very odd. There's whole passages where it goes by where there's not even any written dialogue. It's just these sort of confrontations with evil, and you don't know if it's evil or if you don't know if it's sinister forces that are around the skull itself, or if there's a... It's very... It's a really fun movie, and it's influential to me. Let me give you a weird double feature if you want a Marquis de Sade back-to-back. Right. Watch The Skull and then watch Quills. I like that movie a lot. Jeffrey Rush plays the Marquis de Sade. That movie's bonkers. I did right. watch it twice in a row once. Wow. I really found it very compelling. I thought he was very good at it. I haven't seen it in a cool decade, so right. please don't come for me. It's problematic as fuck because the Marquis de Sade problematic as fuck. Right. Like, I, you can't... Right. Then just what it is. Uh, he was both extremely forward-thinking and problematic as fuck. Yeah. Like, I, I, there's, that's it. That's what we can say. I was going to say, he's both extremely forward-thinking and French. <laughs> and, and I will so, say, the other thing I would recommend is to uh, support the WGA. Mm -hmm. The Writers Guild of America is on strike as of today, right. the yes, day that I we're filming that. or recording. I don't know how long it's going to go. Um, they deserve residuals. Yeah. I, it, it shouldn't even be a question. It turns out that Westworld was pulled off HBO Max specifically so they didn't have to pay the writers residuals. Oh. So if that's what yeah, the com these companies are doing, well, they're making ass tons of money hand right. over fist off of the work produced by writers, because without writers, I hate to tell you, there's no, uh, you know, TV renaissance. There's no right. best best show ever. None of that exists without the writers. Right. We're we're watching a couple of shows, but primarily uh, the servant. We're, the we're ser show. just servant. It's not the right. servant. Just servant. servant. Serving um, the Yellow Jackets are two extraordinarily right. well-written shows. And the fact that in that show in particular, Servant, mm -hmm. they keep so many balls in the air at the same time. It's a juggling act. And you're just, at the end of it, you're not, uh, there's information that's passed on to you, information mm -hmm. that's not passed on to you. You don't understand someone's motivation until two episodes later. And at the every episode that's done that we finish watching, I'm going, my God, how do they keep how, all that going? How do they keep it going? And and I'm still invested. And there's right. new questions. And they've answered some things, but not everything. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, they're doing a really. I'm really enjoying that show. Um, so yeah, um, th there may be a pause on some of your favorite things because of this writer strike. Right. 
don't grumble about that. Go back and watch your previous favorite things and hope that the people who wrote them get residuals for them soon because yes, it's absolutely ridiculous. The amount of money that Hollywood makes off the backs of people who get paid a single time right. is obscene. Yes. Um, and we really moved into streaming before we got all of this worked out, which is a shame because now we're in this space where they, the studios can just do whatever the fuck they want and there's no recourse. So I'm glad that they situation. decided to go ahead and um, vote. I'd like to tell the uh, New York Times op-ed uh, copywriters, heading writers, to go fuck themselves. Really? Because they literally published an op-ed that said something like, if Hollywood wants to keep going, they need to pay writers for doing nothing. That's how they fucking worded mm -hmm. it. And what this argument is, is over residuals. They didn't do nothing. They did something that's making you money now. Now, right. now, now. So they should be making money now, now, now. Every time somebody pushes by, right. it's it's ridiculous. Yes. <sighs> Can't wait till fall of capitalism, everybody. Super excited about it. All right, so that gets us to the end. Jurassic Park next week. Right. Uh, if you have questions or comments or concerns in the meantime, you know where to find us. We are on Twitter, at LatecomersPod. We are on Facebook, Latecomers Podcast, or Latecomers Podcast fans page, if you want to go join that. Uh, it's all the same stuff. Uh, or you can email us, latecomerspod at gmail.com. I want to remind you to please, please take your medicines. And we'd like to remind you that Very late than never. never.